the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Thursday, April the 9th, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Today on April 9, 1942, during World War II, 75,000 Philippine and American defenders, they were on baton. They surrendered to Japanese troops. The troops, the Japanese troops, forced the prisoners into what became known as the Bataan Death March. Thousands died or were killed en route. Freedom is not free. It costs. Liberty costs. Today in 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered his army to Union Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. That's the only war that's ever been fought in the history of the world, civil war, over a righteous principle. The principle was slavery. One man cannot own another man. Over 800,000 Americans died fighting for righteousness. It's difficult when people, like Barack Obama did so often, Tell us that America is not exceptional. It's no different than any other country. Everybody thinks their country is great. America is exceptional. And what has made us exceptional is not the fact that we are perfect, the fact that we are imperfect, but we strive, we strive, and we still do. We strive for what is right and what is good. And that is... That is the foundation upon which this country was built. Judeo-Christian values and principles. Today in 1959, NASA, they presented their first seven astronauts, Carpenter, Cooper, Glenn, we know a lot of these names, Grissom, Shirah, Shepard, all of those guys, they made history. Today in 1963, British statesman Winston Churchill he was proclaimed an honorary U.S. citizen by President John F. Kennedy. Churchill couldn't make it. He wanted to come, but he couldn't make it to the proceedings, so he watched them live on television. He was at home. I don't know. Maybe he had a had the flu or something. Anyway, he couldn't make it. I think it was health reasons, actually. Today, in 1968, funeral services, private and public, were held for Martin Luther King, Jr., Services at the Ebenezer Baptist Church and Morehouse College in Atlanta. This was five days after the civil rights leader had was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Today, in 1979, officials declared an end to the crisis involving the Three Mile Island Unit 2 nuclear reactor in Pennsylvania. Remember that? Had a meltdown there. It was 12 days after the partial core Meltdown, they said today in 1975, everything's okay. I guess it was. I remember that incident very well. Here we are today, so I guess things were okay. Today in 2003, Iraqis were celebrating in the streets. 
the collapse of Saddam Hussein's regime. They pulled down that big statue. You may remember seeing images of that on the news. Big, looked like it was bronze or something. It was kind of bronze colored. They pulled it down. Then they got this this hacksaw or something. It was a big, huge thing that was in the center of Baghdad there. They pulled it down. They got this statue on the ground, and then they cut the head off the statue. They beheaded the statue. I always find that interesting, how those guys in the Middle East are always beheading people, even statues. But anyway, they were embracing American troops, <clears throat> calling America their liberator. Some of them were calling America their savior. Today in 2005, Britain's Prince Charles married his longtime love, Camilla Parker Bowles. She took the title of Duchess of Cornwall. There are so many thoughts that cross my mind about that relationship. I think they deserve each other. I won't comment anymore because that isn't what this is about today. But Charles is an interesting guy, isn't he? <clears throat> Camilla's interesting as well. Last night on Laura Ingram on Fox News, she was interviewing the Attorney General, U.S. Attorney General William Barr. In the interview, he was expressing his displeasure about the partisan nature of criticisms leveled against President Trump on a number of items, but one of them was for his handling of this coronavirus pandemic. And by all honest accounts, he and Mike Pence and all these doctors and all these guys up there really are doing a, a great job. I mean, it isn't like they spent three years preparing for a coronavirus that would come out of Wuhan, China. You know, they it's always easy to say after the fact, well, we should have been prepared. Well, I mean, how many things can you prepare for? These things happen. And I think they have responded very well. And I would say that I think Jay Inslee, boy, I don't support him, I'll tell you. But I think he's handled, for the most part, this thing in Washington State pretty well. He's done a lot of the right things, I think. And he deserves credit. I Would I put no? But I think it's, it's fair to just be honest about that when people are doing a good job, not to get lost to the politics, but it seems that we just can't do that anymore. So anyway, that's what Barr was talking about to with Laura Ingram last night on her, her show on Fox. And he noted that the efforts to criticize he's, this uh, hydrochloroquine, um, hydroxychloroquine, a drug that Trump has been uh, uh, touting during appearances on his his press conferences every day, Barr said, quote, it's very disappointing because I think the president went out at the beginning of this thing and really was statesmanlike, trying to bring people together, working with all the governors, keeping his patience as he got these snarky gotcha questions from the White House media pool. He continued, this U.S. Attorney General Barr, he said, and the stridency of the partisan attacks on him has gotten higher and higher. Well, and they have. My wife and I have, been, have talked about that. But anyway, he continues, quote, It's really disappointing to see. And he said the politicization of decisions like this hydroxychloroquine has been amazing to me. 
He said before the president said anything about it, there there was fair and balanced coverage of this very promising drug. And he said the fact that it has a, such a long track record that risks uh, were pretty well known. He said as soon as he said something positive about it, the media has been on a jihad to discredit the drug. He said it's quite strange. Well, it is quite strange. In fact, they are on a jihad to about the drug just because Trump and somebody has very uh, in a very crafty way has married Trump to the drug and Huffington Post put out a story yesterday that's saying that President Donald Trump is promoting the drug because he owns part of the company that makes the drug and he does a little tiny bit so immediately and fortunately some conservatives went into the fact check mode they checked it out and here's the truth the truth is that Trump's personal financial interest is in a company called uh, Sanofi. I think that's the way you pronounce it. It's a, a French company. And um, in his financial closures to the government, it shows that his three family trusts each had investments in a $10.3 billion Dodge and Cox mutual fund that owned shares in Sanofi. Sanofi is the world's fifth largest drug maker by prescription sales. And of its latest disclosures, these holdings amount to just 3.3% of the fund's holdings. Trump's financial interest is through a mutual fund in a company that is related to the company that makes this drug. The market capitalization is $58 billion dollars. And so, therefore, Trump's ownership in this drug, this hydroxychloroquine, is $99.10. That's the truth. That's the world we live in. It's amazing. They will stop at nothing to take out this man. I understand that Bill Barr is his... U.S. Attorney, but Bill Barr is not known to be, you know, to just go with the flow. He's his own man, and he has been for a long time. He's not new to this political scene. He's been around a long time, very smart. <clears throat> I like him because I like what he stands for. <clears throat> so, I don't know. It That's the world we live in today, and it's going to continue, and we're going to live with this through the election in November it's going to be very interesting. I find it interesting as well. I'm not going to comment on that today, on that much today, but we'll talk about that in the future. But boy, Joe Biden is really—I mean, they really have him cloistered away. I know we're all we're all, you know, staying in and we're all really practicing what we're being asked to do about this. In fact, uh, 90% of American adults say they're personally following social distancing guidelines. They're standing six feet from other people outside their home. They're not gathering in groups. This new survey came out this morning. 90% of us are doing this. 10, I guess, apparently are not. But Joe Biden is obviously seizing the moment, and he's in that. And he's staying at home. He's got a TV camera there now, and he's streaming online and one thing or another. He's doing interviews and that. But by and large, he's staying out of the fray. Yet yesterday they announced that Barack Obama has set up a new website, 
and he's on there now streaming and he's talking to the American public. And obviously there are many people that are watching and listening to him. He's beginning to try to take control of this next election coming up in November. That's what he's trying to do. I think there's a reason why he has not yet come out in support of Joe Biden. I think they have something up their sleeve, the far left. I don't know if Joe Biden will even be their candidate. And if he is, they will tell him who his vice president uh, running mate will be. And it probably will. He's already said it'll be a woman. So I suppose it will be. But they will tell him who it is. He won't make that decision. He'll, he'll say it's his decision, but it won't be. They'll make that decision because they know that he has certain limitations and they show up every time he talks. And I understand all of us as we age, we, we're not quite as sharp as maybe we were at some point. I think we're much wiser, but maybe not as sharp. But all of that's going to be playing out in front of us over the next few months. But I can guarantee you that Joe Biden isn't traditionally running for president as the Democratic nominee. There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes. I don't know what all it is, but I know it's going on. And I think you have sensed that as well. So we need to be in prayer for our country. We need to be praying for our country. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a verse that's often mentioned. I'll mention it again because there's a movement... It's called the 714 Movement, and people are doing this. In fact, in other countries, they're starting to do it now, and and it was birthed out of this coronavirus, this pandemic. But people are setting their iPhone, setting the alarm on it, or setting an alarm or making a note to themselves, whatever. But for the most part, people are setting their iPhone, the little uh, timer on there, the little um, alert button, the buzzer, to go off at 7.14 a.m. or 7.14 p.m. And wherever they are, whatever they're doing, and for the most part, we're not in very many places other than home, at least 90% of us. And when the buzzer goes off at 7.14 a.m. or p.m. or both, just pause and pray. Ask God. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Just pray that prayer or whatever, but take a moment and pray. Pray for America. Pray for all of the people that are affected by this pandemic. Pray for God to move this pandemic through this whatever phase it is and to bring us back to being free of the plague. So that movement is happening today, and that was birthed completely out of this pandemic. In the face of evil, good often comes, because God allows and disallows all that is. God is sovereign God is in control. That is the promise of Easter. That is the promise of all things. Most people do not come back from the death, from from the dead. Lazarus did. But Jesus was resurrected. All of the other spiritual leaders, all of them, Buddha, Muhammad, you name them, 
They're in the grave. Their bones are somewhere. But Jesus Christ, 500 people saw him. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as we contemplate Easter, and I'll be talking much more about Easter and the resurrection tomorrow on this program, but as we contemplate Easter and this weekend, and so much has changed in our lives, so many things are different now. But as we contemplate Easter, there's a question that I see keep arising. Pastors are talking about it. Even the news media has been talking about it the last few days. And they're saying that as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and there are a couple of billion people on this planet that believe that he rose from the dead. The resurrection, that the whole gospel, the whole Christianity is based not on a, a series of doctrines and and philosophical beliefs. There are those who claim to be Christians who their life is built on a series of beliefs or a belief system that may or may not include the resurrection, the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Christianity is not based on that. If you look at the book of Acts, the sermons that those guys were preaching, and they had walked with Jesus, they knew him. The sermons they were preaching was about the resurrection. Peter stood out there in the streets and told thousands of people, he said, you know that Messiah that we've been waiting for all these years? He said, well, he came and you killed him. Thousands accepted the message, but he said he's alive. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the power of God to transform a life, to transform a culture, to transform a world. So that's what Easter is is all about. But as we prepare to celebrate Easter, and Good Friday tomorrow and, and Saturday and then Sunday, and he is risen. There's a lot of people asking Is it true that he will return? And there are those who actually say they believe in the resurrection, but they don't believe he will return. How do you put all that together? Because the same Jesus that said he would raise from the dead on the third day, and the prophets who said that also said he will return. I want to talk to you just for a couple of minutes about that. I mean, it's it's in the news. People are really debating this. Will, Will Jesus Christ actually return? In fact, so much so that Lifeway, it's a Christian-based survey company, but Lifeway did a survey, published it, about pastors, what they really believe. They found found that 8 in 10 pastors say they believe that Jesus will return, literally and personally, return to earth again. This is from evangelical pastors and black pastors. Mainstream pastors, not so much. They think Jesus might have even been kind of a metaphor, just a teacher, a rabbi, smart rabbi, good teacher, but not really divine. There's much of that, but we'll skip that part of it because they're in a minority. Unfortunately, there are people who follow their message, but eight in ten pastors in the what would be considered the evangelical community and the black pastors, they believe that Jesus is going to come back and that he's literally and personally going to return to earth again. 56% of the, of those people believe it's going to happen in their lifetime. This survey by Lifeway Research has found 8 in 10 pastors, 97% of evangelical and historically black 
church pastors believe he will literally and personally return to earth again. 56%, as I said, believe that he'll return in their lifetime. Pastors were also asked if they believe current events are the birth pangs that Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 24. I wish I had time to read chapter 24. I don't. But here's how they responded to that. And I'll come back to a couple of verses from Matthew 24 in a moment. But here's how they responded to that. On each option, there's a whole list of things in Matthew 24 that Jesus says these things will happen. He says, I'm going to come back. I mean, to say that he's not going to return is really a stretch. You almost have to say, well, Jesus either wasn't telling the truth or he wasn't really informed about his own activities in the future. That's a pretty tough thing to get to, but people do, and pastors do. They preach that kind of false teaching from pulpits. But 83% of these pastors, they believe that the rise of false prophets and false teachings is a sign. These are all things that are mentioned in Matthew 24 by Jesus. 81% believe that the love of many believers growing cold is evidence that Jesus is coming again soon. 79% believe that traditional morals becoming less accepted is a sign of Christ's return. 78% believe that wars and national conflicts are a sign of that return. 76% believe that earthquakes and other natural disasters are a sign. 75% believe the number of people abandoning their Christian faith. Remember how many people we've had come out, some people that, like Christian leaders, some, some Christian music artists have come out and said, well, I don't believe in God anymore after they've you know, made a few bucks on their Christian records. It, it's, it's sad, but it isn't unique to our culture and our time. I mean, people were doing that way back in the day, in the early church. I mean, there were people that were falling away. The New Testament talks about that. Jesus mentioned that himself in his teaching and his comments in Matthew 24. 70% believe that the famines are a sign of Christ's return. And 63% believe that the extreme anti-Semitism toward Jewish people worldwide is a sign of that. The pastors were asked about their beliefs, that if you believe this, and so many of them do, most of them do, and they're apparently preaching this from their pulpits, thankfully. So the pastors were asked what their beliefs were regarding all-millennialism, post-millennialism, and premillennialism. And I want to just touch on that. I won't get into that. I, I mean, this isn't church, and it isn't Wednesday night Bible study, but 60% believe the millennium will be a future, literal, 1,000-year period during which Jesus reigns on earth following Christ's second coming. That's known as premillennialism. 21% believe the millennium is a symbolic way of describing the prior the period between Christ's ascension and second coming. This is known known as amillennialism. 9% believe the millennium is not a literal 1,000 years, but an era in which the world will gradually become more Christian and just, ending with Christ's second coming. This is known as post-millennialism. But the coronavirus has essentially shut down the world. It's causing people to look outside themselves, some for the first time in a long time, and I'd like to talk to you for a moment about what I believe and why I believe it. I've been an ordained minister since I was in my 20s. My entire life, I've been a pastor. I've been involved in 
mission, evangelism around the world. We built some 150 or more churches, schools, a couple of medical centers in the name of the Lord. I've preached in the deserts and out in the wild in Africa and preached in the two largest churches in the world. And it all comes down to this. What do I believe? What do you believe about Easter, about the return of Christ, about the inerrancy of God's word, the sovereignty of God? What do we believe? That's what it comes down to. We can't pick and choose. We can't say, well, Jesus got it right here, but he didn't get it right there. Although some do now, and that's kind of the elitist approach to Christianity, the same elitist approach that they practice toward politics. The things that have entertained us, consumed us, often directed us, including much of our decision-making, have been stripped away. It's gone. Many Christians and non-Christians are struck by fear. Christians, mostly fear of change. Non-Christians, mostly terrorized by fear of not being in control anymore. I was in control. Now they're not. The coronavirus has done this to us. Look at verses 7 and 8 in Matthew 24. For nation shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. This teaching of Jesus is meant to be comforting to biblical Christians, not to scare us. It should be a warning to non-Christians. They should be frightened. But recently I've been seeing more and more articles claiming that we are now under the wrath of God in America. This is God's judgment. This is, and I've seen and read people saying, this is the tribulation. It has begun. No, it hasn't. This isn't it. This is the time, the beginning of sorrows. We're not yet under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is indescribable. It is described in Scripture. But we're experiencing what Jesus is calling the beginning of sorrows. The wrath of God will be poured out as it's defined in the book of Revelation. His wrath will be directed at a world and a people who have mocked God, rejected God, rejected his son, Jesus Christ, nailed him to a cross, spit on him, and watched him die. The wrath of God is going to be something that is indescribable. Today we are not living under the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the penalty of sin has been paid, or there isn't an Easter. How can we say that we must go through the punishment for sin? Yes, there is sin in our culture. I talk about it nearly every day in one way or another on this program. But for goodness sakes, if the price has been paid, it is finished on the cross. It is completed when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We are not paying the price as the price will ultimately be paid. This is not the great tribulation that the Bible speaks about. It's the beginning of sorrows. I think people are, their attention is being turned. And if there is one message through this pandemic that we're experiencing now, and it's tough, it's really tough. The message would be this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's how to believe. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what God is saying to this world today through the pandemic, and that's the message of Easter. He is risen. Your sins have been paid for. You must accept it. Well, 
as always, I have more to say. But we're out of time. We'll continue our conversation tomorrow. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for your support. We'll see you right here tomorrow.